Welcome to the Sanity Pod, honest human stories from the front lines of startup life. Our mission is to normalize the ups and downs of creating something from nothing and the challenges common to every leader, such that we might all feel a little less alone in the journey. Welcome. We are so glad you're here. There are a number of people where I just look at and I'm like, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, I just want to reach that Zen place. And I think I'm I'm on track. I'm on track, but... I like the confidence. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Today, I'm excited to welcome Blaine Vess. In the last two years, Blaine has become one of the most prolific angel investors in the country. He previously founded Student Brands, which he bootstrapped with his co-founders and ran as CEO, later chairman, through acquisition by Barnes & Noble in 2017. Blaine also co-founded Solve, which completed the summer 2017 Y Combinator batch and was acquired later that year. Beyond his success as a founder and investor, Blaine is a deeply thoughtful, humble, and curious human, willing to speak openly about numerous aspects of the founder journey and his experience on the investor side. If you have ever felt like investors are the other or out of reach, this conversation may be deeply helpful. I think you're going to love Blaine. Now, on to Blaine. Welcome, man. How's the day been so far? Day's been good. Had a couple meetings, worked out. Here we are. Pretty chill. How about you? Good. A little coaching this morning. A couple of good conversations and looking forward to another one here. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for asking. Happy to be here. <laughs> the uh, the technical setup reminds me, I have this grade school buddy that I reconnected with recently, and there's this funny like thread for a bunch of reasons, but uh, one of the threads is we used to play video games together in grade school, and then we've mm-hmm. been, now that we're in our 40s, we've been trying to play some Xbox online together, and we have tried like four times, but we can never get it to work. And so that's what, that's what our setup today reminds me of is, uh, the, the ongoing effort. So I'm glad we made it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Getting harder to deal with this technical stuff as we age. I know. Well, I'm glad you're here, man. And thanks for doing this. As I sent you over the primer and the aim of this podcast is to help tell some of the open, honest stories that we go through as founders to, to, in an effort to normalize the journey for others that are starting out or earlier on. And I was excited to have you on for a bunch of reasons. Um, one is that you are a founder. Another mm-hmm. is that you are now a pretty active angel investor. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much to your story that I think has the potential to resonate. And maybe I'll let you introduce yourself and I'll maybe prompt a few parts of your background if those don't quite come forward in the introduction and, and then share some of my hopes for the time today and we'll let the conversation go where it goes. How's that sound? Sounds perfect. Cool. Well, I'll give you a moment to introduce yourself. Cool. Yeah. So I'm Blaine Vess. I'm originally from Chicago. I live in LA now. I've been here about 17, 18 years. I started a couple of companies before, one called Student Brands, that was essentially a platform for students to share course notes and research online. That's how it started. Bootstrapped that for about 18 years, um, and it was acquired by Barnes & Noble Education in 2017. 
I also started another company called Solve. And we basically helped people get through immigration and customs quickly when they were traveling overseas. Hmm. That company was YC backed. We were in the summer 2017 batch. YC, the whole program essentially accelerated us to the point of knowing that we didn't want to work on this company for 10 plus years. So we ended up selling it to a company called Black Lane a few months after YC. Hmm. I had invested in startups and funds and all sorts of stuff for a number of years, starting back in say 2011. But um, after exiting both companies, I kind of just went bigger with that. So my day to day now is mainly focused on investing in a lot of startups, many of them in the YC community, and also venture capital funds, crypto funds, real estate, all sorts of stuff. Mm. And then I'll just, I guess I'll just add that I'm always on this, like, always trying to grow personally too. You know, we met at CEO Bootcamp. You know, I did this coaching program last year. I think we're both fortunate to have had some great coaches helping us along the way. You know, I've done ayahuasca a bunch of times. Just, I just keep pushing myself to keep growing. So, yeah, that's really it. I love it. What a beautiful intro. Thank you so much. A couple of things that jumped off the page there for me. One was, you said 18 years, Student Brands was 18 years. Is that right? Yes. Started in 1999, freshman in college. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah, it was pretty much, yeah, my whole adult life. So rare. Yeah. yeah. 18 to 36. So 18. I mean, eight, as a parent, 18 is the number that you think of as like an entire childhood. Uh, so right. in a way, you spent an entire childhood. Totally. Yeah. So lots there. We've been friends for many years now, and I, I want to just kind of name some of the hopes that I had for us coming into conversation today. And I think a lot of it comes from remembering the way that I felt when I was starting my last company. And that was the first company for which I raised outside capital. Mm -hmm. And I remember the feeling of, I don't know anyone when I started, I, I remember thinking, I don't know anyone who invests in companies. I don't really know how it works. I know that there are these, or I read that there are these people called angel investors that I should be talking to, which is a very strange and mythical name. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they're like. And then when we did begin raising money, what came with the money, which I hear a lot now on the coaching side from other founders was this like weird mix of like pressure and unspoken expectations, many self-imposed and this worry of, am I handling these other people's money? Well, how should I think about that? How are they thinking about that? And so I think I'm bringing into our conversation today, some hopes that our dialogue might demystify some of this for folks who are thinking about raising money, but never have. Mm -hmm. So your experience as a bootstrap founder, and then a YC founder, and now as an investor, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking will be quite interesting. And then also for folks that already have big cap tables, maybe allowing them to drop into the mind and thought patterns of an investor in a way that can, at least for me, was really hard to do as a founder and CEO when I was working with investors for the first time. So I'm hoping that there may be a sense of more clarity or more ease or more connection with what it is to be an investor investing in startups uh, so that the folks that are listening who are on the founder or CEO side 
maybe walk away with a little more ease and a little more clarity, maybe even a, a chance at more connection with the investors that they're working with. So those are my hopes. Curious how that lands for you and any other hopes that you're bringing in. Yeah, all that lands well for me. Yeah, particularly the particularly the investor founder relationship stuff. I've thought a lot more about that over the past few years, particularly from the investor side, uh, of course. But yeah, I definitely have some thoughts there. So um, yeah, let's dive in. Beautiful. Well, maybe an interesting place to start would be what's, as you look back, what marks your experience of moving from an operating founder CEO to the investor side? And maybe that's a good place for us to start. What's that been like? I'd say it started out pretty hard. Hmm. I, especially having a, the student brands for so long, hmm. I definitely went through a transition period of just not knowing what I was going to do when you know, I pretty much knew what I was going to do every day for 18 years. You know, I was working on my company and I actually bought a number of companies along the way from other founders. And I never understood the whole, like, well, if I sell this thing, what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to be bored, that whole thing. But I I understood that more after selling student brands. Hmm. And I'd say transitioning to investment, being an investor full-time wasn't really I didn't think I was going to land there. The main catalyst for that transition was I was talking to an investor who I admire, a guy named Tom Ball at Next Coast Ventures. And we'd met years ago when I was at Student Brands. And I was just kind of asking him, what should I do next? I thought he'd have some good advice. And thankfully he did. And he suggested that I do this Kaufman Fellowship, which is a two-year fellowship for venture capitalists. I would say I'm not the typical profile of someone in the Kaufman Fellowship. It truly is more people that are fully focused on investing. But yeah, Tom thankfully nominated me for the Kaufman Fellowship and thankfully I got in. And through that, you know, learning more about investing, I'm still in the program now, but learning more about investing, meeting more people in the space, seeing how people do things. We're also required to have a couple of mentors in the program. So I, had, I reached out to a friend who is a late stage investor, as well as a friend who's an early stage investor, actually Will at Mucker, who I, I think you know too. Yeah. So thanks to Steve from Active and Capital and then Will sort of guiding me along the way and kind of pushing me a bit, you know, the transition to being an investor has been a great experience. I'm still weighing like, whether it'll be exactly like what I'm doing in the very long term, but mm-hmm. at least for now, it's, it's fun. I learn a lot, meet great people. A lot of good things have come out of it. Beautiful. And you, you've been very active. I'll let you share your own numbers as you like, if you like, but I'm curious in all that activity, if we were to sit with a few of the founders in whom you've invested, what would you hope that they would say about their experience with you? I would hope that they would say that I'm there when they need me, Hmm. that I don't apply pressure. I'm just there to help. I'd hope that they'd say, even the people that I didn't invest in their companies, that they'd say I was helpful or great to interact with, made decisions quickly, and just in general, were founder friendly. Hmm. 
And I, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm curious to hone in on this. I carried a lot of weight mentally when I began mm-hmm. accepting and working with other people's money. And this is something that I hear often in speaking with CEOs from the coaching side as well. There's a weightiness to it. And I'm curious from your seat on the being an active angel investor, I'm curious how you hold the investments mentally or emotionally. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also curious how you hope that the CEOs and teams that are accepting money from you, how you hope that they hold the investment. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I'm familiar with that weightiness too, even with the small amount of money that we raised at Solve and even raising money from YC, who clearly has plenty of money to to toss around. Like I really felt that weight and I've still never raised money. We ended up giving back money to the people who invested at Solve when we knew that we weren't going to continue forward with it. But I felt that weight and I still feel that weight whenever I think about raising money. I'm trying to like get past that. So with the founders kind of like what my expectations are, is that a good way to talk about it? Yeah, that seems like a great place to start. Yeah. Okay. I'd say I know that building a company is hard. I know that many of these investments, many of these companies just won't work out. I think as long as the founder is just really having that fiduciary responsibility of like, hey, people gave me money. I'm going to do my best to like be a good steward of that capital. Just knowing that, yeah, this might not work out, but I'm going to do my very best to make sure that people, they've invested in me, they've trusted me. I'm going to do my best to make sure this works out the best it can. That's really it. And I think as an investor too, I I like communication. I like Mm -hmm. transparency. And I think I give founders room for that. Like if someone gives me bad news, I'm not going to freak out about it or something. I'm either going to help where I can or just have the faith that they'll work through it. Yeah. What was the second part of your question again? The second part was how you hope that the CEOs or teams that you invest in, how you hope that they hold the investment mentally or emotionally. How they hold it emotionally. I don't want them to be on edge about it. I don't want them to feel some sort of unnecessary pressure. I think, you know, anybody building an early stage startup, like there's a pressure, there's a pressure to make sure it works. And that pressure is enough. Like founders have so much to deal with anyway, the pressure that they're putting on themselves that I think with my, I'll just speak for myself and not other investors, but yeah, with my money, like I'd love for them to do their best to try to build something big but I don't want them to feel overly obligated to me. I know it's hard and I guess I'd just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. There's a lot of faith there. A lot of faith. Did you say? Yeah. A lot of faith in the founder. Like I invest and I just have the faith that they're going to do their best and do what they can to build something big. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I'm not going to be like mad about it or something. What percent of your investments do you expect to uh, earn money? What percent of your angel investments? A pretty small percentage. I don't know what exactly that looks like, but I did about 50 investments from August 
2020 to August 2021. So it's mm-hmm. super active during that time. <laughs> That's a lot of investment. <laughs> yeah. That's one a week with a short Christmas break. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's funny. So if 10% work out, like that'd be awesome. And I guess workout can mean a variety of things. Hopefully there's an outlier in there, something that, that mm-hmm. gets really big. We'll see. But mm-hmm. it's a bit of an experiment. I don't know what to expect. I love the levity with which you speak about this. And something that I feel like I'm reading between the lines is that your ability to pay your mortgage and keep groceries on the table is not at risk based on the returns of your angel investments. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's some it's a it's an idea that was so out of touch for me early on and now doing a very small amount of angel investing on my side compared to your volume, which is pretty cool and exciting. Uh, but just shifting to an investor mindset and in, in looking at it as a portfolio and not only a portfolio of angel investments, but a portfolio inside of other areas of investment that bring stability and kind of long-term predictability to what you're doing as you manage your own resources. Mm-hmm. And that just felt so far away from me when I took my first outside money. And I appreciate you naming that. And even the laughter that came when I asked you about it is pretty neat to hear. So thank you for that. My pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. And I imagine that the founders with whom you're working are able to hear some of that as well. You mentioned something in your introduction that I'm curious for us to turn toward. And that was the kind of unexpectedness of the experience of not knowing what might be next after you spent 18 years building a company. Mm. And I feel like this is a really interesting place for us to turn in part because culturally, and especially in Silicon Valley tech startup world, we're really good at holding this idea that there's going to come this day where this thing is going to happen that I've been working toward. And on that day, all will be well, because I fill in the blank, right? Raise money, sell my company, make money, whatever it may be. Yes. And I'm curious what you're up for sharing about that quote unquote arrival for you. What, what was there? Yeah. So I had an interesting transition because we were in YC with Solve when Student Brands was acquired. So I got to celebrate very briefly. I got to celebrate the acquisition very briefly. And that evening, even after this acquisition, this life-changing thing, I was kind of back to, back to working on Solve. So it was a strange moment, and that was August 2017. I also got married a year later in September 2018. You had a lot going on. Yeah. So with those two transitions, I didn't realize what, you know, how many things were going on around me and just happening in my life. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And actually, what I've realized in the last year was that I was a total workaholic. And I don't mean that in the awesome, like, we're American, let's work nonstop, like, this is great. I mean it more so like it was a problem. And being a workaholic, and then not having anything to do, I was still, you know, on email all day, or finding other things. I started like walking a ton, you know, like just taking really long walks or like reading like tons of books. I just 
found other ways to occupy my time. I could be doing worse things, right? But it wasn't where I wanted to be. But I, I didn't recognize that really until really within the last year. How did you know it was a problem? What made it not what, where you wanted to be? Because perhaps some people listening might think that taking long walks and reading books sounds pretty nice, but it sounds like it represented something to you that wasn't what you were needing. Yeah, I, I read a book last year that's actually part of the Hudson Institute, the, the coaching program, one of, one of the books we have to read. It's called Chained to the Desk. It's a book about workaholics and workaholism. And that book was just really eye-opening for me. So when I'm reflecting on the past of like reading tons of books and walking a ton, you know, I probably at that time, I probably didn't think it was that big of a deal. It really wasn't until I read this book and I actually work with the author, Brian Robinson is now my therapist. And yeah, I mean, that's been some of the most helpful work that I've done in the last, in the last year. So I guess my point is like, we can apply workaholic tendencies to things that aren't even work related, like just staying busy. People are always busy, right? I was getting busy through like too much walking <laughs> and too many books. So yeah, getting out of that, that kind of naturally happened as I started the Kaufman Fellowship, started, you know, investing, but actually, I mean, I think that workaholism continued through the way that I was investing. I mean, doing those 50 investments over that one year mm -hmm. period. Yeah, that was a lot of work in the what summer 2021 batch of YC. There were like 400 companies and my team and I, where I was on pretty much every Zoom, I guess, we interacted with 275 companies in that kind of like wow. three month period. And actually I was doing the coaching program and doing the Kaufman Fellowship and doing this investing all at once. It was a lot. Thankfully, I read that book. Thankfully, I've been working with Brian and now I'm feeling, feeling like less of a workaholic. But I, again, I think the main thing that I noticed now was like, once I didn't have that work to do, didn't have it at student brands, didn't have it at Solve, mm -hmm. I was really trying to create it somewhere. And, and I was successful with it. Not saying I recommend it. What did it, what did it do for you? What, before you made a shift, it sounds like there's been a big shift away from the workaholism, as you've called it. What yeah. was it doing for you? What, what was the role it was playing? if you're up for sharing. Yeah, I think it was like any addiction where it was perhaps distracting me from some things in my life. Not that there's anything that bad going on. I just mean like, you know, just distracting me from being present in my marriage with friends, with family. And I, I don't even know why, you know, like, I think that's a part of the workaholism. It just continued. Like I just had this need to be busy. I don't even know why. Yeah. The easiest example is like email addiction. Mm -hmm. Having done this for over 20 years, yeah. waking up, getting on email, answering something five minutes later, another one comes through. Okay. Answering that five minutes later, another thing constantly doing that. I mean, thankfully now, you know, I have adopted some tools. Like I use Mailman to only deliver. I only get my email at 3 p.m. I, oh, I don't know about Mailman. That's cool. It's great. Yeah. 
once a day. I just have it. You can set it however you'd like, but I just have once a day email That's delivery. Cool. Oh, I love that. It's amazing. It's super helpful. And then on my phone, I actually, I use the, I don't know if you'd call them parental settings or adult content settings to then block all news websites. I deleted the Gmail app. I deleted Facebook, LinkedIn, mm -hmm. anything like any time that I'm finding something that I'm doing over and over again, like, oh, mm -hmm. let's go look at that thing. I cut it out as soon as I notice it. Mm -hmm. And that's also helped me really be present. But I would attribute that maybe that's workaholism. Maybe it's just some sort of regular old email addiction or something. But just trying to cut out as much of that stuff has been super helpful. Um, mm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing what's been helpful. Today's episode is brought to you by Pluto Pillows. In all of life's little ups and downs, sleep is perhaps your most important ally. Pluto provides a personalized pillow directly to your door. The only irony here for me is that I loved my Pluto pillow until my wife stole it, and now she loves it. Personalized for me, but no longer mine. Well, still a win for the family, I suppose. Check out PlutoPillow.com. All orders receive free shipping and a 100-night guarantee. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sanity Labs. Sanity Labs provides founder and executive coaching designed by founders for founders. If you have considered hiring a CEO coach but had a hard time finding one who really knew what it felt like to be in the founder or CEO seat, be sure to check out Sanity Labs. Sanity bridges leadership development with actual tactics for company building to ensure you are not alone in the hardest parts of your role. Visit sanitylabs.co for more details. Reminder before we return to the episode, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode or any feedback at all, please email us at questions at the sanitypod.com. Now back to Blaine. As you were answering the question of where the workaholism was of use, I just couldn't relate to so much of it. And what came forward for me was, I feel like both you and I have done quite a bit of work uh, trying to process you know, the traditional childhood stuff. And yeah. compared to many, we, you and I have both been very fortunate. And also there's stuff for everyone. And even once we process the things that we're carrying, just being human is a weird thing where there are existential concerns around being human and the brevity of our lives and threats to the world and people we love. And for me, at least, I spent so much of my life thinking when I arrive there, wherever the there was, or when I have that, then I will feel okay. And I think if you pressed me, I imagined I would feel okay in perpetuity. And man, is that just not the case? At least that's <laughs> how I carry it. I don't know if that resonates for you. It does, That does resonate with me. The whole growth personal growth thing. I wish it would just end, <laughs> you know, like, just like, okay, figured this thing out. I'm yeah. done. Like I'm good for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. But it just keeps going and it's a good thing, but it's just hard and it never ends, but I'm thankful for it. Like even now I think about myself in 10 years from now, like I'm just constantly trying to reach that Zen version of me, like Jerry Khalid, um, Chip Conley um, of the Modern Elder Academy. Like, there are a number of people where I just look at and I'm like, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, I just want to reach that Zen place. And I yeah. think I'm on, <laughs> I'm on track. 
I'm on track, but I like the confidence. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. For people that are listening that might not know, so Jerry and Khalid are mutual friends of ours, and also I think probably at different times coaches or allies to each of us, and are uh, co-founders at uh, Reboot. And I, it's funny that you say that because as you were talking about wanting there to be kind of a finish line or somewhere to arrive, I feel like I could hear Jerry's voice in my head uh, saying something like, "Isn't that wonderful?" Isn't that wonderful that there's no end? He would say something, I think, not to put words in his mouth, just that annoying, but also beautiful and profound. Uh, yes. Isn't that wonderful, Blaine and Matt, that you don't need to arrive? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So some of this brought forward a question for me that I hear often from clients in coaching work. Often in coaching, I find myself in conversations about the way that folks have lived and worked up till this point. And then often uh, people come into coaching because they've hit some wall or some realization that the way that they've been living and working is not sustainable or is not going to achieve the results where they need to go or is not giving them the life that they want. Um, my sense, and you can correct me if I'm off, is that as a thoughtful adult human, as, a, as an entrepreneur that you could relate to this, mm -hmm. having done much of your own work. I'm also curious, my sense also is that as an investor now that you may have something to say to the question I'm leading up to. The question that often comes forward as we're doing the work from ambitious kind of founder types is if I do the work and I find my way to a new place where I've got perhaps more ease, perhaps more healthy separation from the work, perhaps less workaholism, mm -hmm. am I going to lose my edge? Mm. There's this curiosity of like, am I better off or am I going to be worse off? Because I've been so driven by some of this stuff. Yes. And am I going to lose my edge? And I'm curious what you, putting your coaching hat on, what you might share with these folks who are holding that question. Yes. Okay. I've thought about this. I think I actually asked Jerry and Khaled about this at one of our boot camps. Like, would you ever really want to coach Elon Musk? Like, we don't want to take away any of that drive, right? Like, because they might break him. Is that the, is that <laughs> right? The exactly. Like if, <laughs> if, if, you know, after six months of coaching he's like, all right, I'm good. I'm done. Is that like a disservice to the world? It's like extreme example, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. Let's do it. I think what's coming to me though, is really with coaching and actually Brian Robinson, who I mentioned, talked to me about this, but it's really about being drawn to things rather than driven to things. And driven, mm. driven being like shoulds, you know, I should be doing this. I have to be doing this. And drawn is just like, yeah, I, this is awesome. I really want to be doing this. So I've been trying to incorporate that more into my life. And I think we both know, like, if someone can get out of coaching this, you know, removing sort of the toxic aspects of whatever is driving someone like a super ambitious founder, whatever is driving someone to do something. Removing the toxic elements, it doesn't have to remove the good stuff. Like, wow, I'm building a, an awesome company or I, I want to change the world in this way, or I'm on a mission to do this. That stuff can still exist. It's just so much better to be in a place of doing it because you're drawn to it, doing it from a healthy place rather than a overly driven place. Yeah. There is a tough balance there. You know, even thinking about a founder like Travis Kalanick, who had his own difficulties and just if we remove the overall uber difficulties clearly a super driven founder would those investors the early investors over there 
really want him to calm down. I could see a fear of someone like that calming down. Yeah. But again, I do think as long as someone can be drawn to something, working on it in a healthy way, it's a positive. And for that reason, like coaching, it doesn't scare me, if that mm. all makes sense. <laughs> it doesn't scare you. And I'm curious for CEOs in whom you've invested, would it scare you that they might lose their edge? Because it is an interesting part of the system. One could see that there might be some conflicting incentives here. And really curious for investors how this gets held. And so I appreciate you letting me put you on the spot. Sure. Yeah. I think they can keep their edge. It all depends on like how we define edge. Yeah. I think if they are on a mission to build a big company that has a positive impact on the world, ideally makes everyone involved a good amount of money. Those are good things. There doesn't have to be a toxic shoulds or toxic drive making that stuff happen. So even for a founder who's super ambitious, which obviously most or many are, I'm not as worried about it if they were still ambitious, but doing it in a healthy way. I think it's a positive and hopefully doing it in a healthy way. They don't burn out, crash and burn, you know, have to leave the company, all that kind of stuff. And they can stick around. Yeah. So I'm hearing longevity. I'm hearing the mm -hmm. energy might come from a different place. I like that. I really like that drawn to not driven to one way that I often talk about this in coaching is if we look at a startup less as digging ditches or pounding nails where raw effort is enough. And we look at it more as a game of chess, then suddenly what it is to have your edge looks very different. I appreciate you pointing that out. Having an edge as a chess player might look like thoughtfulness, rest, having eaten well, yes. coming in, feeling emotionally calm. And that may be a source of edge and startups. When we talk about edge, that is that is not the general example of what we're talking about, right? We're talking about almost like maniacal drive, this chip on the shoulder, uh, yes. need to prove something. And I appreciate you noting like nothing potentially wrong with that, but when it is, when the fear clouds clarity and judgment and thoughtfulness and strategy, that suddenly that version of edge doesn't look so helpful. Yeah, I love the way you put it digging ditches versus a game of chess. I love that. That's exactly it. I want to be respectful of your time and I'm conscious that we're approaching the end of our scheduled time. Have we missed anything that if you could think back on yourself, just starting out a couple of years in to mm -hmm. your first company, have we missed anything from where you are now that would be helpful for that Blaine to hear? And that may be helpful to people listening topics, questions, learnings, what comes up for you? So we touched on this a bit earlier. I would say that at that early stage level, and I, I'm really working on this for myself too. I'm saying this to myself is don't fear raising money. Don't fear raising money from people who can afford to invest in your company, whether that's mm -hmm. family and friends or whether that's VCs. That's something that I really wrestled with. And just knowing that they'll be okay, even if things don't work out, I think can really help can really help a founder build. The other thing that I'll mention 
is something I've thought about these last couple of years. And I, I, people don't talk about this much, I don't think, um, but it's empathy toward investors. Mm. Um, you know, we Same talk more. a lot of, yeah, we talk a lot about empathy for founders, but I think empathy for investors is equally important. One of my friends is a great VC and I see him, he has to raise money for the fund. He has to meet great founders and be able to deploy capital. He has to sit on these boards, which I've been shocked at the drama that he's had to deal with. So there's that. Mm. He also has to have a team. He's managing a team too. He's like the CEO of this fund. So yeah, an investor is really an entrepreneur too, in many cases, or they're, they're an important team member at a fund as well. It's a hard job. And I think the other thing I would say to that is I used to, you know, an investor didn't want to invest in solve and I had never really raised money. I took it very personally. I even remember making some sort of snarky remark or something. And now looking back, I see how silly that was because mm -hmm. investors, they just have to believe in the idea. They have to believe in the founder. It's pretty straightforward. And they're also stewards of capital and they need to be careful. They need to get the conviction they need to invest. So I'd throw out there to the founders, don't take it personally. And also just know that investors are people too. They're in a very similar boat as founders. They're not just writing checks and waiting to be billionaires or something. Like it's hard work. I appreciate you inviting us behind the curtain on some <laughs> of that. Of course. What comes up for me there is that there is an opportunity for empathy kind of on both sides of operating and investing and also for more connection. This comes up a lot for me in exploring board dynamics. And it feels to me like kind of investor founder relations and then boards more specifically are not talked about often enough. Mm. And if we look at the investor founder relationship or the board as a team and the way that we would look as look at the executive folks around a company as a team and begin to ask a question around what would it take for this to be a high trust, high function team, then the empathy that you're talking about becomes very critical. And also there's a lot of opportunity there for more connection, more openness, more collaboration, so that the conversations that are happening either between founder and angel investor or founder, potential angel investor or founder and board member becomes a source of support and creativity instead of a place of stress where we're just assuming the worst of the other or assuming we have to please the other in order for things yes. to work. So I appreciate you inviting us behind the curtain a bit. My pleasure. Yeah. Blaine, for folks that are listening that um, might want to learn more about you or connect with you about potential investing, what's the best way for them to find you online or elsewhere? Of course. Yeah. So you can check out my website. It's called immeasurable.com. You can email me. It's just blaine at immeasurable.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Happy to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you so much, my friend, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. That's today's episode. Please follow and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your positive reviews mean the world to us. Lastly, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode, please email us at questions at the sanitypod.com. Thank you so much for listening.